made. Wow. There's so much music in the universe. I wonder what it all sounds like. Hmm. Hi, my name is DJ Non James, and I host Be Sure to Loop every Thursday from 1 to 3 p.m. on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. What's a loop? A loop is this magical thing that repeats itself over and over again. It's fun. Come with us on our musical journey, and we'll explore loops and other fun stuff too. You can bring a friend or call in to make a request at 734-763-3500. Explore distant musical lands that spread far and wide. Hear sounds that you may have never dreamed of. Expand your mind. WCBN. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, I'm so happy to have Dan Gerber here and Joseph Bednarnik. Bednarnik. <laughs> Joseph. <laughs> it's good to see both of you here. Um, we're taping the program the 5th of November, 2012. Um, Dan, you're, you're taking a, a book tour um, around the state of Michigan currently um, with the newly hot off the press sailing through Cassiopeia. Yes, it is. It's, it is hot off the press. Actually, I got the first copy uh, about a week ago, and uh, I was afraid that uh, you know I, that the baby wasn't going to arrive in time for the christening. You know, but <laughs> actually, we uh, you know we made it. <laughs> and, under the wire, so. Oh well, brilliant, and it's a and it's a it's a beautiful baby. Thank you. <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> lovely, and that actually doesn't surprise me because it's um, because you you you're a poet that publishes with Copper Canyon Press. Yes. And um, Joseph, today you you are we're not surprised either. You you are our. Um, in-studio representative from Copper Canyon Press today. Well, thank you for letting me be here. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and I just, I just wanted to point out, I mean, Copper Canyon does beautiful books. I mean, not, not only visually beautiful, but they, uh, they take such care uh, with everything. But I did want to point out that the cover art on the book is by an artist uh, from Ann Arbor named Grace Ann Warren. Uh, uh, and I... I bought a uh, Joseph Cornell box that she did uh, about 25 years ago, and I'd lost track of the uh, uh, of the name. But uh, going through some old papers, I found uh, an invoice for this and Googled her, and you know saw her work online, and then found this image, and and loved it, and uh, got in touch with uh, you know with Grace Ann. Uh, and actually had dinner with her uh, last night and we first met last night but uh, after all after all those years from yes. that over, and how how art unites people something that you saw of hers because it, it was in new york city in a yes. small gallery right right, right. Yeah. and and then and what was it about this particular um image that you thought was perfect for the book you know originally i had wanted to use a uh, mark rothko painting and uh, uh Michael Wiggers at Copper Canyon said uh, that he thought uh, he he loved the the painting and he loved part. He said, but there have been too many Rothko uh, 
covers. And and when I found Grace Ann's work and uh, uh, ran that by, he saw this one. He said, "Oh, I like this," you know. And it and kind of goes with the uh, the title, "Sailing Through Cassiopeia," because the the, the her title is "Celestial Mechanics," uh, you know, of the of the of the work. It uh, really is yeah. lovely, and that and that also might be one of the things that sets Copper Canyon apart too, where they, they ask you, what would you like the book to look like? They right. give you um, the chance to right. visually help design it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it been a, a great uh, experience for, well, I guess it's, it would have been about six years now. I mean, well, maybe a little bit before that when we got started with you, uh, these uh, these books you know they take about 3 years i mean from the time that they're planned until actually they get into the uh you know into the loop and uh um so um actually the the, the previous book a primer on parallel lives has a uh, winslow homer painting on the cover and and when i did a reading uh last spring the guy who introduced me said you know he first became aware of my work because he bought that book because of the cover and uh, <laughs> so it's important. <laughs> he judged the book well, by its cover. <laughs> well, he, he he wanted you know he wanted the cover, and then he found out that he liked the, you know he liked what was in the book as well. You know, so. Well, well I'm not surprised. <laughs> these these poems and you sailing through Cassiopeia. This is also another um, another book that people I feel will once they start um, opening. To any page, actually, you feel welcomed right away into this, uh, sort of into the mind of Dan Gerber. Yeah, I hope it's not too scary a place, you know, but... uh... (laughs) No, No, but you, there is nothing that you you don't consider, Dan, whether it's um, an electron... Mm-hmm. Or, <laughs> and then slightly bigger snail. Yeah, <laughs> and then you know I'm tried. fascinated by science and 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 mathematics. And when I'm working on a poem, it often feels like I'm working on an equation. Uh, and I'm fascinated by the minds of mathematicians. I, 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 personally, however, I passed geometry in high school by promising my geometry teacher I wouldn't take solid and trig. You know, so it's uh, <laughs> which they also taught. So right, they were like, right. Get you know, them but, off it, the but hook. It, it works. Uh, Ezra Pound said that uh, uh, poetry is a kind of inspired mathematics in which the poet uh, finds equations for the emotions, and uh, that's so, big. Yeah. <laughs> And it seems like so in my, somebody's you know, got to do in my it. Fantasy, in my fantasy life, I'm a, uh, I'm a great mathematician. Uh, how, however, in, in, in my real life, um, no. Oh. Yeah. And, and was this um, geometry class, was, this was in western Michigan? Where, it was. It, 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 well, um, I'm a dyslexic. They didn't, know, they didn't have the word for it when I was a child. Uh, but um, uh, I think with geometry, I, I did all right with algebra. Algebra with geometry was the spatial relationships. And uh, when I was in the first grade, they uh, took me to the opportunity room right away because I uh, the opportunity room the opportunity room that's what they called it then because uh, um, I couldn't spell and I had a whole lot of trouble reading Dick and Jane, you know, because the the words in, in my mind would. Change places, you know, and uh, how do you think actually, that's been become part of the poems, Dan? Like, is there a way that that's working in the poems? Actually, too? you know, I, I I think 
sometimes, actually, I have uh, done things like written uh, God when I meant dog or something, and it turned out to be really uh, kind of profound, or it seems so. Yes. You know, uh, um, I may be exaggerating that a little bit, but I mean that has act, that sort of thing has actually happened. And there's God and dogs and dog come up in, in with, the, many a time through sailing through Cassiopeia. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And on your walks with the dogs and yes. And, and, yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, I, mean, I was. I was just saying to Joseph this morning, talking about how when I saw. Um, uh, where the wild things are. His favorite line in it was uh, one of the characters saying, oh, can we sleep in a pile? You know, because uh, my wife and I uh, share the bed with two Labrador retrievers, so it's a, it's a, it's a struggle for space all yeah. night, you know, in establishing your territory. Right. It's nice that they let you guys right. on the bed, too. Right. <laughs> do you have... Do you have you a- know, just, just what you've said there uh, brought up a poem called Dyslexic that... Uh, uh, When I was in the second grade, and they didn't yet have the word, my parents hired a special teacher to help me get by with my spelling. After a week of frustration, my teacher quit. It was like trying to re-educate a magnet, he told my mother, as if I'd been born into the wrong language, he said. That's a great one. That's... And that idea of that magnet, like pulling the words, like maybe displacing them or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have to read everything twice, and I still do, sort of, you know, because I would uh, um, I'd read a paragraph and it wouldn't quite make sense. And I'd realize that the, uh, you know, I was changing the uh, uh, the word orders around. I've gotten much better with it over many years of practice. But, uh, <laughs> and so is it something, uh, Is but you're, yet you you work in words, mm-hmm. like that's your medium. You didn't then become a painter or, because um, you were going to create something. Yeah. Right? You're a maker. Um, but words. Well, I think um, I was sent away to school when I was 12 years old and I was, you know, very lonely and, and, uh, and pretty unhappy, but uh, I just, I remember reading a poem called The Highwayman by Alfred Noyce, you know, and it, uh, that's the first one I remember, and it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck, and it took me out of the world that I was in at that moment, and, and then Walter de la Mare's The Listeners, and then Shelley's Ode to the West Wind, but I didn't think about wanting to be a writer at that point, but I, I, I knew I wanted to do something with words to try to create the same kind of experience and feelings in myself that these, you know, that these things I was reading uh, had done. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I think that's really when it got started. So you were creating experiences of with the language. Because mm-hmm. so often I think that that I was th- seeing the, the poems as observational, very mm-hmm. clo- close awareness and presence. Yeah, right. Well, I think that's, you know, the the key is paying attention. I think uh, there's a story that in the, when the Buddha arose from under the bow tree after sitting there for 49 days or whatever it was, you know, and uh, he encountered <clears throat> uh, people and they came up to him and said, 
you know, the, he had this presence about him. And they said, are you a god? And he said, no, I'm awake. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it, there, it, you know, it's, it's the exercise in, in being awake and paying attention. I was talking to a class the other day, and I was saying, you know, you, your job is to open the windows and the doors. You can't plan for the breeze. But... Uh, uh, but if you, that's a lovely yeah. way of of talking about this um the the what makes the, like the process of writing like being a writer mm-hmm. being in it right like what the the it's like an opportunity room right <laughs> that right. you're trying to create yeah. right yeah. well one of my Open favorite things about doors. it was randall jarrell said that uh, uh, a poet uh, a good poet is a man who in a lifetime of standing out in thunderstorms manages to get struck by lightning a half dozen times a dozen or two dozen and he's great and and i uh that has seemed to me you know y- your job is to find the thunderstorms and polish the lightning rod and stand out and you can't make the lightning strike but if you you know, you're there. If you don't do you're the, ready. if you don't do the work and pay attention, it, it, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and um, and I, uh, it led me to write a poem that was, the title was longer than the poem, I think, but it was called "A Man Struck by Lightning Is Seldom Appeased by House Current." You know, <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. But um, seldom appeased. Seldom appeased by House Current. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think we can feel the electricity. Um, in this book. Definitely, Dan. Um, before we go to break, I'm going to read the short bio um, out from, from the back of Sailing Through Cassiopeia, just out with Copper Canyon Press, literally, like a week ago. Um, Dan Gerber is the author of seven previous volumes of poetry, most recently, A Primer on Parallel Lives, as well as three novels, a collection of short stories, and two books of nonfiction. His awards include Forward Magazine's Book of the Year Award in Poetry, the Michigan Author Award, and the Mark Twain Award. His poems have appeared in Poetry, The New Yorker, The Nation, and Best American Poetry. He and his wife, Debbie, live with their beloved menagerie, domestic and wild, in the mountains of California's central coast. And and Dan, when so Michigan, you were born and raised in Michigan. When you went away to school, did you did you stay in Michigan for those early years too? When you were twelve, or were you? Uh, yeah, I started out there, uh, and um, and then went to a. Uh, most of my life has been in in Michigan. I mean, I I was here fifty two years uh, of it, so. That's where everything got, you know, got started. Well, we'll take a short break and then okay. maybe we'll pick up there. Okay. We'll, we'll hear some Arvo Part in the breaks that you've picked, that Dan yeah. has picked. And, and then we'll be back. You've got Living Writers today. Dan Gerber is here. Joseph Badarnik and I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Reverend Andrew Engineering. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today, Dan Gerber is here on the program. His latest book of poems out with Copper Canyon Press, Sailing Through Cassiopeia. Um, Dan Gerber is here in the studio, and so is Joseph Bedarnik from Copper Canyon Press also. Um, so so pleased to have both of you gentlemen here today. Um, thanks for well, coming. We're very happy to be here. And so, Dan... Michigan. So, so, um, it's so, do you think that Michigan is still living and breathing in these poems as part of, cause you call upon the natural world. And now when I was reading sailing through Cassiopeia, often I, I place you within sort of the, the, the valley where I think you live now in California. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are moving through time and memory in these poems. Yeah. So, um, but, well, you know, I, I heard, uh, um, T.S. Eliot, you know, is often thought of as a, a, a British poet, but um, he spent the first 26 years of his life in, in the States. And I think something that he said keys, keyed off to the fact that he really was an American poet because he talked about the charming custom of taking tea. Now, that's not something an Englishman <laughs> would say. You know. <laughs> so It's just like drinking water. Right. <laughs> I think, um, you know, my previous two books took a lot from, I, I lived in Idaho uh, for a while, and, you know, so that landscape became uh, 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 food in, in those poems, and and I think, you know, in a, a good part of uh, the previous book, A Primer on Parallel Lives, you know, encompassed the, uh, the California landscape uh, where I am. Uh, it, it's not like anybody's idea of California. I've been visited by at least half a dozen native Californians who've been there a day or two and said, you know, this isn't a California I've ever seen before. <laughs> really? Yeah. And uh, this is the Santa Inez Valley? Valley, yeah. 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 Why? Uh, Why well, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, I see more wildlife. Uh, I have looked up from my desk and seen looking in at me at the window it, uh, across the room in a, in a panel in a glass door. Foxes, badgers, bobcat. Um, <laughs> really peering in at you. Right, right? yeah. You know, so, or deer, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, like you're in a Joseph Cornell box. Sort of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, so it's, it's sort of this... Uh, you know, enveloping world. It's almost like you're uh, living in a zoo or a game park. Uh, but I, I love that poem where you mentioned going out early one morning, so maybe even just with the light, and then startling the buck who's outside. And, and you, st- you oh, start. Right. Both of you are startled, and and deer, deer really do um, play a part in this book because then there's that. Uh, what is that other wonderful poem too? With the the so so sad with the um, dusk, so the other oh, end of day right. too. So you actually have these that's a that's a, that's poems. a poem that came from definitely from Michigan. Oh, did it experience? Oh, yeah, my gosh. from uh, uh, I'm just looking for that right now. Actually, this this came from an experience some years ago on driving south on. Uh, uh, M37, you know, north of Baldwin. Um, Dusk. The stag, leaping across the November highway, broke clean in two between ribs at the withers. 
steam rising into the cold evening air above its still pulsing heart. The man with the bloody face behind the caved-in windshield of the van asks, what should I do? Asks it twice. Can I keep the deer? Asks the kid from the Camaro pulled up on the shoulder behind the van. Don't move, I said. Just don't move. The deer's heart throbbed one more time. The deer's heart, in the first clear light of its life, stopped beating. So, so you know, there's still some Michigan experience <laughs> in this latest book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sadly, that is such the deer and the roads. This uh-huh. is, yeah, I somehow wish they could. <laughs> yeah. And then the. Teach course, the mother you know, can I keep the deer? Yeah, that that's that's that's, that's such so so brutal in a way as that other man is uh-huh. um almost didn't make it himself in the van, yes. yeah. right? Yeah. And it yeah, I, I must say that my favorite part of that is when you just you say don't move and it right. sounds like you're responding to what should I like what should I do yeah. from the other man, right. yeah. but it's this you're man and his wife that... are sitting all covered with blood behind the broken windshield and I'm just, you know, it's kind of like I don't know some uh, deer shaman, yeah. To N- help knowledge, the deer you know. Leave. I mean, you know, if, if somebody's just excited, a trauma, you know, uh, don't move. You know, check everything out. <laughs> That's true. But, uh, I actually thought it was you were protecting the deer's last moment. Oh well, you know, I mean, I think that's part. I think that's part of the ambiguity in the poem. You know that uh, that uh, yeah. Uh, what I was really th- responding to was the condition of the people behind it. Uh, the, you know, the injured people, but also it was the, uh, uh, you know, as, as the poem ends, there uh, have a moment for this last, you know, uh, uh, life. Life. Yeah. And then the, the deer doesn't move right. anymore. Yeah. 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 That's the amazing part of what you're able to do in this, this very compact space of that poem. All those layers of ambiguity yeah. are work and questioning right. you as so that's how you're creating the experience well it's yeah and it, and you know i can't say that it's intentional that i thought about this and it was going to make it uh uh happen that way i mean this is, when you go you back find. and revision and you and you and you uh, and you see uh that but robert frost said you know a poem has to float like a piece of ice on a hot stove you know, float on its own melting. And if there's no surprise for the writer, there's no surprise for the reader. I mean, if I have an idea for a poem and it comes fully fledged in my mind, I know it's never going to turn into a good poem because mm-hmm. I know I, I know where it's going. I mean, if the poem isn't a journey for me, uh, and ideally it would take me to a place where uh, I would come to a conclusion at the end and my response, whether it's a poem that I'm writing or a poem that I'm reading, uh, and it ends up with, yes, you know, that's right. Or it reminds you of something you didn't know you knew. Or, oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, that kind of a, uh, uh, you know, of a, of a moment. Uh, yeah, I, I 
let's see, William Faulkner asked, uh, was asked if he planned his stories and novels in advance, and he said, no, a disorderly writer like me can't do that. He said, <laughs> characters appear and start saying and doing things, and I follow them around with a pencil, and at some point a policeman comes in and blows a whistle and says, look, you have to make something coherent out of this, and that's where the <laughs> discipline comes in. I knew I liked Faulkner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, well, well, on the short break, we were talking about um, the, the book, Sailing Through Cassiopeia. And, and Dan, you've got um, a poem, a, a page open for us. This, yeah, this is kind of a, a sort of an Ars Poetica, um, perhaps for the book. Willa Cather said in, I think it was in her novel, the, uh, Song of the Lark, she has this wonderful passage. She said, what is any art? but a sheath in which to imprison that shining, elusive quality which is life itself, too swift to stop, too sweet to lose. And, you know, I think the impulse in any art is to make something, and you're making something of uh, that, uh, 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 you know, you can't stop, you can't stop life and you can't stop time, but you you can memorialize it. You can, you know, make something to make it, make it continue to to live, uh, in in your heart and spirit. And uh, and that's this. You took this moment here, mm-hmm. and did well, this yeah. This poem is called "In a Rented Cabin." I have a little cabin in Montana that I rent uh, for oh, usually a week in July and a week in September, and I always call it mine. And. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, and one of the nicest things about it is uh, that um, I don't have, you know, I don't have to do anything about it when I'm when I'm not <laughs> there. Uh, but my son and and grandson, when he was six, I think, uh, joined me there for a week to go fishing. And and uh, this poem is called "In Our Rented Cabin." It begins with a uh, a line from Tufu, written in the eighth century in which he says, I live my late years as if I've stolen my life. And, you know, and I think part of this book is the perspective of, you know, uh, being older. <laughs> and in uh, uh, our rented cabin, my son and grandson sleep in the next room. I've been awake and up for hours, and they will likely sleep a few more. Is it an old man's hunger to take in all he can of what's left of his life? Though still a year short of 70, not really old yet, my my father and grandfather didn't live much past it. This morning, I think I'm up early for them, watching the first light spread like soft butter over the rolling meadows of the foothills and the little green pastures on the mountains above. I can't get enough of this moment. What is it that urges me on to take it all in, to save what I can for them to see through my eyes? And um, so, you know, I, I think that's that's the impulse. Uh, you know, I... I can't stop it, but I don't want to lose it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and also, um, you're you're giving it because you're trying to save yeah. it somehow for for them, whether right. it's your right. your father, grandfather, or your son right. and grandson. You know, this just uh, 
This brings up a poem that's actually just written in the last week or two. I mean, this is not in the book. It's it's oh, it's, it's, oh. it's later, but um, uh, my son uh, and his wife were selling their house and having to move, and uh, so they asked the children. Uh, granddaughter Natalie is 12 and my grandson Danny you know who's named after me yes. I'm very pleased um, <laughs> what they'd miss most uh, about mm. the place they grew up and this poem is called what Danny said when asked what it was he'd miss most having to leave the house he'd known the whole nine years of his life he squinted and looked off a little beyond where we were just then and said the smell I think it's the smell I'll miss most. Maybe we can take that with us. <laughs> I, uh, when I sent that to a uh, poet friend of mine in Santa Barbara, and he said, uh-oh, he said, I think you've got a poet on your hands here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's, it's inheritance. He's got your name, and now he's got the, the poem. Poor kid. Poem you know, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Oh, well, well. Well, Dan, let's um, let's take a short break, okay. and then we'll come back and and we'll 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 talk more um, today on the program. Dan Gerber is here. His latest book um, from Copper Canyon Press, "Sailing Through Cassiopeia," and we also have Joseph Benharnik here. Um, and we're going to take a short break. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor, um, in the studio, Dan Gerber and Joseph Bedarnik. Um, Dan's latest book, Sailing Through Cassiopeia, is just hot off the press, as we were saying, from Copper Canyon Press um, out in the great state of Washington. And so, gentlemen, you've known each other some years because, Dan, this is your second this is our second conversation on living writers. Right. So we're, we're pals. Yes. Yes. Old friends. <laughs> and, and Joseph, when, when did, um, when did you first read Dan, Dan's poems? Oh, that's a great question. I was, uh, in my early twenties hitchhiking across the country. Uh, I had a very small budget and happened to be in Northern Michigan, wound up in a bookstore, um, and had one of those great moments in my traveling life where I could decide between, buying a book of poems or buying lunch <laughs> and i was holding dan gerber's uh, book snow on the backs of animals and had read a few poems from that 
and decided that the book was far more important than a submarine sandwich and bought the book and spent I was just telling a friend of this uh, a friend of mine this uh, probably the best reading day of my life sitting in northern Michigan reading this book cover to cover and you know, since that time, have been a, a very uh, big fan of the work and an advocate for the work. Um, so much so that a few years later, I wound up. Dan uh, helped found and co-edit a literary magazine, Sumac. Sumac, correct. With um, Jim Harrison. With Jim Harrison, and uh, I wound up. Kind of the way that I operate is find <laughs> find an find an author that you love and start reading the work. And was also very interested in literary magazines, so uh, hunted down some copies of Sumac and became very interested in that. Um, and then a few years later, contacted Dan and kind of floated the idea of doing an anthology of Sumac that wound up getting uh, edited and published. And Dan and I had started a correspondence and didn't meet until years later um, in the in the quote-unquote real world. So. <clears throat> so you had a, a relationship about poems and ideas and talking on the phone and through letters? Too? Uh, we never talked on the phone, actually. No. Oh. Just all letters. This is pre-email. Yes. And uh, there's a, there, one, of a, one of the wonderful things about Dan is he's a calligrapher. And so all of it, well, I don't know if it's calligrapher, but he writes in calligraphic script. Um, it's very and, beautiful. Then. You know, so there's incredible physicality to the correspondence. And you never want to lose that. So I'd much prefer to get a letter from Dan Gerber <laughs> than I would an email from Dan Gerber. <laughs> yeah. He's got a beautiful poem, actually, about um, ink, you know, writing something and having the ink dry and watching the words literally flow from his hand. And I, that is just such a, there's an attentive quality to, the, to each letter, to each word, to each line. Um, it when, feels also very e Eastern and meditative. Like it's, it... uh, yeah. Uh, a student asked the other day if my, you know, poems came out of uh, meditation. You know, and and I've been a, you know, I've meditated for well, I've got about forty years now. You know, it's kind of starting the day. It's kind of like brushing your teeth, and 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 that just kind of sort of seamlessly floats into the work day uh, <clears throat> and uh, you know I was at, uh, Keats talked about musing uh, somebody asked him you know what are you doing and uh, musing it, I, I'm, I'm sitting here and not thinking uh, not being engaged uh, you know with anything external so that uh, creating the space in which a poem can you know can occur mm. uh, and uh, I suppose that kind of segues into another very new poem, but I mean this is will sound a, a little odd and a little melodramatic. But actually, on the twentieth of August, nineteen sixty-two, um, I took a walk down the an, a, an abandoned road from my house and sat on the trunk of a fallen tree. And uh, <clears throat> there's a point in my life where I, you know, I was unhappy with the job that I had and kind of uh, kind of generally down and I made a vow that day that seeing the word the world through words and letters uh, was going to be my goal you know that I that, that was going to be sort of the guide in in that direction and I know it was the 20th of August because I wrote a very bad poem called the 20th of August. <laughs> 
and, 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 and this was kind of going on faith. I, I, I hadn't written a good poem yet at that time. Oh. Uh, but uh, and but how I, did you know that? And or is that ref, like looking back on it? I think or? maybe it was going back to that experience I had when I was twelve years old, oh, and I found I found that a kind of salvation. You know, I found that a, a something that that kept me going. You know, in teaching, I've had students you know show me their work and then ask me if I thought they should be a writer or, or if they should be a poet, and I'd say, you, you know, you're asking the wrong person mm-hmm. that question. What you have to ask yourself is, do I have to do this to to be fulfilled in my life? And and um, and if the answer is no, then by all means go and do something else. Uh, and if the answer is yes, then you're stuck with it. And so, you know, do the best you can. Uh, but Joseph mentioned the ink drying, and <clears throat> this is a another pretty untested poem. I've, it may be the first time I've read it in in public it's a scoop called once again in august on the anniversary of uh, of the month i began it 50 years ago i continue composing my love letter to the earth in all her beauty and affliction hoping i might love her even a little bit more i write down the words and blow on the paper till the black ink stops shining and the author is all but forgotten, till the tree out the window is the live oak on the hillside and me, till her leaves are the stars of her own particular galaxy and mine, till the blades of grass surrounding her are the evidence of her stubborn persistence and mine till the all-enveloping scrim of the sky is her fragile blue cloak and mine, till in another five billion years she's blown into a cloud of hydrogen dust, food for a future Earth, and I still haven't finished her song. That sounds like another Ars Poetic. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's all I write. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I thought of another poem in, in what we were... Uh, uh, Joseph mentioned Jim Harrison. Uh, Jim and I had that experience. <clears throat> We'd gone to school together. I think there were 15 people at Michigan State University in the late 50s, early 60s, who went on to become published novelists and and poets. Not by any design. I was a political science major. Tom McGuane was was there. I think he was there because he'd been kicked out of several other schools. Richard Ford (laughs) was a a hotel restaurant management major. Uh, But... um, so I remember Jim being there, and a professor that I uh, stayed close to uh, oh, about f- four years after I graduated from college, and I was visiting him at uh, his cottage up on Old Mission Peninsula. And he, he said, do you remember Jim Harrison? And I said, yeah, sort of. And he handed me Jim's first book of poems, Plain Song. And I read that book and was just, uh, you know, stunned. And here was a guy who was doing what I was trying to do. I mean, these poems just... And you already me... knew him, too, Well, like from the past. You know, I mean, I, I, I remembered him. I don't think, you know, we really knew each other. But I wrote uh, to him, and we corresponded for uh, two years. 
And then it was December 31st, 1967, New Year's Eve. There was a knock at the door, and it was Jim and his wife. He'd gotten a, a uh, national endowment grant and was going to move back to Michigan the next year. And we had been up north looking for a, a place to live the next year and it was headed back to Lansing and, and stopped. And that's when we first met face-to-face. Because he had your address from the letters. Right. And I corresponded with Annie Dillard for 25 years, and then we met at a dinner party and went aside and started you know, talking about old times. I mean, I have a number of relationships. I, I still have like some... Like with Joseph, like too. With Joseph. It's yeah. strangely parallel. Yeah, yeah. The story Joseph told, too. Uh, it was actually through letters that led me to my Zen master that uh, um, I, I, I still have poet friends that I call friends, but we've never actually met. We only know each other through correspondence. Through the words and the poems. Through the words. Yeah. But this, uh, <clears throat> this, this poem... Uh, because of Jim, this is, goes back to that same cabin. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, Jim had come down. Uh, this was in Montana. Had uh, come down and spent a couple of nights uh, with me, and we'd you know gone fishing. And he had left um, that day, and I took a nap that that afternoon. And um, this poem is called "Napping in a Cabin Near Ennis, Montana." <laughs> And there's a quote from Keats that begins, and, and he's awake who thinks himself asleep. In my dream, seven different shades of green well up and reach out and wrap their slender arms around my shoulders and thighs. My friend Jim asks if I have a pencil. I realize it's only a dream, and I'm not obliged to write it down. I don't want to wake up yet to leave the tendrils I'm loving. A horse nickers in the deep summer grass, and I'm willing to believe, though he stamps his foot and I hear the swish of it through the window, that he's grazing in the green of my dream. Now I hear someone trying to start a rusty old pump wheel, sandhill cranes yodeling extravagantly from the bog across the river willows. Do you have a pencil, he asks. The funny thing about that was that uh, when I woke up, I was wakened by the phone ringing, and it was Jim. <laughs> and he had called because um, he knew I was going to grill some pork chops that night, and he called to give me a recipe for marinade for the pork chops. So did he literally say, do you so have when a I pencil? Answered, <laughs> when I answered the phone, he said, uh, you got a pencil? And, uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. So I mean, it's, it was just kind of that interweaving between between dream experience and and uh, and the moment. Yes. Yeah. And and um, and it's such a lo- again because of that idea of like, do you have a pencil and resisting like mm-hmm. the the writing down to be in the experience itself, but right. then it it um, won't. It actually, in the end, doesn't let you resist it. Right. You have to go for the pencil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in real life, I, I, I carry a little notebook and a pen in my pocket. Oh, do you have it right now? I have it right there. Yes. <laughs> so it's small enough to literally fit uh-huh. in the, the Yeah, and it's just, and, you know, and, and just things that occur to me that, you know, I, 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 I write down there that may or may not become, uh, find their way into, into future work. And it's not so much necessarily going back and referring to that notebook, but it's the experience of having written it down. 
it changes it, doesn't it? Because then it's yeah. more in your consciousness in a, a different a different way. I, I I think what we remember, and this isn't original with me, but I've read this uh, psychologist that what um, you know there isn't an objective memory of something. I mean, the three of us are sitting here, and something could happen, and we'd each have quite a different story about uh, you know about what actually happened there. But what we remember is our first recounting of what happened. It's the way we tell it the first time, and that, you know, fixes it uh, in our memory. So that's, in that way, we're always creating our lives. Yeah. In, in some way. Well, that's kind of lovely, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's nice to have that option, you know, of uh, creating your life, of course. I mean, uh, I'm not given... I'm not averse to exaggeration sometimes or, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, um, to, to better feel the moment or the, the right. contrasts or right. the, yeah. I mean, in this, our, our, our lives are a story that, uh, uh, that and, we, we, that we remember or not, you know, and thank goodness, uh, writers write them down <laughs> so the readers can bring them into their lives, you know? <laughs> and we'll we'll take a short break and then we'll we'll come back. And I think actually, Joseph, that you you were hinting earlier about what you and Dan are going to do for lunch because I think Dan, you owe Joseph a submarine sandwich <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> from this story. We'll see. We'll see how that works. We'll see out, how right. that works exactly. out. Okay, we're, we'll take a short break on living writers today. Dan Gerber is here. His book Sailing Through Cassiopeia. We also have lucky to have Joseph Bedarnik here from Copper Canyon Press. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be we'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Dan Gerber is here. His latest collection of poems out with Copper Canyon Press, Sailing Through Cassiopeia. And Joseph Bedarnik is here from Copper Canyon Press um, as well. Uh, Joseph, you started, um, you told us how you you found Mm -hmm. Dan Gerber through a book of poems. 
in your 20s. Right. And so when was the moment when you both, because you said years passed before you actually met. Mm-hmm. When when was that? When did that happen? We uh, There was a, a literary seminar down in Key West, Florida, uh, American Writers in the Natural World. And I saw in a magazine who the talent was that was going to be down there. Uh, it included Dan. And I just knew that I had to get there. So I took some time off of work and flew across the country and wound up in Key West. And prior to that, had contacted Dan and said, I'd like to come down. And he said, well, you must come over. And so the first time I ever met, this is a fabulous story. The first time I ever met Dan Gerber um, in Key West, knocked on his door. He invites me in. You know, we embrace like old friends. (laughs) And uh, he brings me into his library, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary place. Um, And then says, why don't you spend some time with these books and leaves? And I was like, oh, my goodness, I am standing in this extraordinary place for the first time. Oh, and because it was your home, Dan. You were living right. in Key West at the time. Okay. Right. Right. Well, Sorry. I, yeah. I'd actually organized the seminar. They have it an annual thing, but, oh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a hard sell to the, uh, to the uh, Key West Literary Seminar to, to do this. You know, people thought, oh, my friends from New York won't have any interest in that. And, and actually, it was... So be it. It, <laughs> was the, it was the first seminar they had that sold out six months before... <gasps> the actual event and then these people were kind of uh, the other people on the board upset because their friends couldn't come because they hadn't gotten tickets yet you know so <laughs> but we had a we strangely had, we satisfying had a great, you know we had jim was there and and uh, tom McQueen, gary snyder peter matheson uh terry tempest williams annie uh, dillard annie dillard uh oh, oh gosh you know it was a great great gathering uh, uh of people. The one thing I remember actually about that the time meeting you in that house is we wound up talking about hurricanes and Dan got up from the table and flipped a switch and all of a sudden all these metallic shades oh. came out. The hurricane shutters. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the goods. This man is prepared. Yeah. Well, it's in that kind of, you know, uh, the first part of this reading tour was supposed to be at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts and uh, they sent me a little headline that said poetry reading canceled by Hur- uh, Hurricane Sandy. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, where do you go next, actually, Dan? What's after Ann Arbor? Home. Home. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, if, if and then I'll go. I think I'll go back to uh, Smith uh, next month. That you had written about maybe rescheduling it. Oh, know, great! So month. it'll continue then. And when will you go out to Port Townsend? Will you do a reading yet. out? And I, I don't know yet. I haven't. Uh, I've got to get back home, and we got to look at the calendar and yeah. get them up there as soon as we can. Get, okay. <laughs> but you'd you'd mentioned a poem earlier about uh, the deer, how we startled each other, and I, I that <clears throat> this poem is called "Early Autumn." The hum- hummingbirds hibernate every night, and the north wind blows the sandpipers south. Unable to sleep past the first inkling of dawn. I step outside and am startled by the startled deer, refugees, all of us, from the long summer drought. We stand, and I savor the standoff. I want to disappear to them, as I may in rare moments, even to myself, with no me to narrate this scene to who I am. So that's one of those moments too that feels deeply like this idea like you can you can see this meditation practice right. that you have in your life this 
Well, I find that, you know, when I find myself in the presence of uh, uh, deer or a bobcat or, you know, this en- encounter, um, one of the wonderful things about it is that it becomes a selfless moment. You, you know, you completely forget about yourself in that moment. And, and, uh, uh, are you a creature on the landscape? Or you, you become a creature of the landscape. You become part of that. This poem is, you know, one of the questions in the book, whoever did the, uh, you know, the blurb on the back, uh, um, what did they write? <clears throat> you mean um, Merwin's called, quote? No, no, the, 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 they said that, you know. Oh, I see. Uh, Dan Gerber's Commonplace. Uh, meditations on how the world, that while beautiful, is also also monstrous. How do we say yes to this, um, you know, to this world? The wildness. That your fingers crossed and saying accept this or accept that. You know, you've got to take the whole enchilada. You know, I mean, life. The uh, ocean with the sharks. That's right. That's right. And uh, this poem is called "Driving Home." It's perfect, I said one day, the thought coming out of nothing I knew to no one sitting beside me while driving home from the market. Said this without thinking, it seems, but could there be such a pure expression with no intention to express? The fields were incomparably green, the sky incomparably blue, lupin and poppies almost blared from the hillsides, at least that's the way I thought it. You are made for enjoyment, Ruskin said, and the world is filled with things you will enjoy. But every day I stumble over cries I can't still. The world is suffering. Say it twice, and it's not the same suffering. The world is suffering. Disease, eviction, envy, grief, loneliness, rejection, dementia, judgment, self-judgment, When those I love may not love each other, or me. Anger, suffocation, helplessness, this helplessness, my suffering of choice at the moment. My friend's daughter, the pianist, whose index finger lost to sarcoma, I can't replace. My daughter, whose breast, I can't replace. My dear friends, whose murdered son, I can't replace. All over which I'm at this moment suffering, though they may be at this moment not. Closer to home, I pull off along the side of the road, staunched by the fleeting, incomparable beauty of the world in which everything happens. Thank you, Dan. You know, uh, he read that poem in Grand Rapids, and it was one of the most courageous things I'd ever seen at a poetry reading. Um, the parents of the murdered son was attending the reading, and Dan had written a letter prior to the reading to show them the poem and the book, and just so they didn't get startled by its presence. And then to watch this couple uh, listen to a poet, a poet who's known for his great presence and his great heart, read a poem and to listen to their sons to the tragedy of their life become song was just extraordinary it was just chilling
You mentioned this before. I, you know, we were talking at the beginning about what kind of what music you you know liked, and I just pulled out Arvo Part, which I love, yeah, who, whom I love. <clears throat> and uh, I, I told a, a friend of mine once. I said, you know, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to write the way. Mark Rothko painted, or the way Arvo Park composed. <laughs> Dickens uh, said he wanted to uh, he wanted to paint the way. No, excuse me, Dickens. Van Gogh said he wanted to paint the way that Dickens wrote. Um, this poem is called Quail. Uh, one little note: if people are familiar with Glenn Gould uh, uh, Bach recordings. If you listen to Glenn Gould's recordings very clearly, you can hear him moaning in the background as he's playing. You know, as he's playing these uh, Goldberg variations. <laughs> Quail. When I listen to Bach, the world is Bach. When Mozart, then Mozart. Yesterday, all morning long, the world was Arvo Part, until it became a commune of California quail. I watched scurry as if of one mind, with my mind among them, back and forth across the road to the barn. When I turn to Machado, the world is incomparably Machado, until it becomes Wallace Stevens, like the quail, pulsing pizzicata of hosannas, taking me right back to Bach, with the house moaning like Glenn Gould in its rising allegretto of wind. And that was not about a hurricane. No, no, no. <laughs> it was just the wind. It was just accidental. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, Dan Merwin's uh, got this this lovely quote on the back here, and and you have a correspondence with Merwin mm-hmm. too, yeah. a letter letter correspondence. Yes. We've been talking about the importance right. of this in relationship. When did did that start for you? Well. I hadn't seen Merwin in about 16 years, and he was giving a reading in Santa Barbara that I, you know, that I went to. And I wanted to say hi and get a book signed afterwards, but I had two dogs at home that I'd been left for a long time, and I had to get back yes. home to. So yes. a friend that I was with, I, I told him, I said, you know, and there was a line of about 70 people signed up here to get books signed. And I said, please tell, uh, uh, tell William that, you know, how much I enjoyed the reading and I wished I had been able to see, but I had to get home. And, and when this guy gave him my regards, he said, oh, Dan Gerber, he said, you know, he, he, he remembered me very well and the person called and told me this. And he said, just tell him next time to bring the damn dogs, you know. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I wrote to, uh, to William and, and he was thrilled to get a letter from me longhand. A real, a genuine yeah. letter. And his his letters are longhand, but his handwriting is a bit difficult to decipher. So what I would do is type <laughs> type it out, except for the words that I couldn't pick up, and then I'd I'd send it to Joseph, and he was frequently good. And the first letter, I, we were finally able to get every word except one word I couldn't get was iconostasis, which is a wall in a Greek Orthodox church for the display of icons. I think I can be forgiven for not being able to. <laughs> You know, to, to pick up on that. One. Those are some great faxes to get from Dan. All right, Joseph, I'm going to fax you up this typescript <laughs> and these blanks, and then you sit around and look at this script. Like, well. I, I don't know if you remember this, Joseph, but this was one of, like, you, you also said, do you know what this word is? Because I did an internship at Copper Canyon mm-hmm. a few years ago. Oh, so this was one of your, I, I don't know if it was that that word, though. Dan, do you have a, a poem uh, that you'd like to, to read as we, because we're, we're winding up the, yeah. the, the program well, here, a, and this yeah, has been lovely. Yeah, this is a, um, um, 
I was taking a shower. I'd just come back from a walk, and I, you know, I didn't have my glasses on, and I was toweling off, and I looked like I'd pulled a, 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 a you know, a, a mole off somewhere. I couldn't quite see what it was. Oh. So I kind of patted it back and I know what poem you're going to read. Yeah, and I thought, I thought maybe I should, uh, uh, you know, when I, next time I see my dermatologist, I'll ask him about this. And then during the night, it started to be painful, and it was really quite painful in the morning. And my wife said, let me take a look at that. She got out a magnifying glass, and she said, it's a tick. And she got out a big French kitchen knife. And, no, she didn't. <laughs> but, you know, dug it out anyway. It, it, it took me about six months and several visits to the dermatologist to get, you know, get this thing to stop festering. But uh, but, I, but there are compensations for all things in life. And, and uh, this poem is, is called To a Tick. I feel your devotion, <laughs> though it doesn't feel quite like love. I've literally got you who dropped in uninvited under my skin, as the old song goes. You of whom I was even unaware, till I became inflamed with your presence, and you engorged with mine. What a perfect couple we are, now living off the same blood. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great poem to go out on. Right, I was just thinking maybe that shouldn't have been the last one. But Leave know. the listeners, right, everyone yeah. out there. Going, Ooh. <laughs> but it's an experience. It is an it's experience. very experiential. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for being here. Dan, thank you for this, this new book of poems, Sailing Through Cassiopeia. Um, Dan Gerber's latest with Copper Canyon Press. Joseph, thank you for being here You're very with welcome. us too. This has been a a great Thanks, a great hour of it's conversation. Come back anytime. Great to be with you again. How about tomorrow? Okay, okay. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> We're gonna put it on the calendar. Right. And thanks to Reverend Andrew for, for engineering yeah. and for all you out there for listening and um and